Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Joshua Cole, the author of Lethal Provocation, The Constantine Murders and the Politics of French Algeria. And the book was published by Cornell University Press in 2019. Hi there, Josh. Hi, Roxanne. So before we talk about books or anything else, Josh, well, happy 2021. You're my first interview of the new year. How are you doing and how have you been doing during these months of global pandemic and turmoil? Well, um, can I just say that we're having this interview on Friday, January 8th, (laughs) two Uh days after the insurrection in Washington. So everything is very hard to see outside the framework of a, a very tumultuous present. It's been a hard year. It's been a hard year as a teacher. It's been a hard year as a member of a family. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I send all my good wishes to listeners out there at this really kind of horrendous time that we are. And at the same time, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. I'm just so delighted that you had the time to speak with me and I'm really looking forward to it too. Josh, I always ask people on this, uh, New Books in French Studies channel, you know, how they got drawn to interested in working on France originally, and in your case, you know, France and eventually Algeria. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, these are these are kind of hard questions to answer, although they should be easy. Um, I think like many people, I ended up developing an interest in history and specifically French history, partly through chance because of some teachers that I encountered early on. Um, there was also a family history here. My mother's best friend growing up uh, married an Associated Press reporter, and we mm. went to Europe to visit them in the summer of 1970 when I was eight years old, and they were living in Paris. And that meant that when I had the choice about what language to learn in middle school, I chose French, just mm. you know, no, no other connection. But I'll say that the more important question is, how did I end up working on French Algeria, somebody working on France and trained really in metropolitan French history. I went to graduate school in the 1980s before the um, sort of famous imperial turn in French history. Mm-hmm. But it was working and living in France in the 1980s and 1990s that made me realize that there was so much about French society that I couldn't understand and that I couldn't explain to my own students without spending more time thinking about North Africa. Hmm. And it was really quite late in my development as a, as a historian, after I started my first job in 1993, that I sort of threw myself into this uh, uh, kind of second apprenticeship, trying to figure out what it meant to think about France in a global context, and specifically what it meant to think about France in relationship to the other side of the Mediterranean in Algeria in particular. Well, I I do want us to get to how you chose this particular project and the exploration of this episode of the the Constantine murders. But maybe before that, I guess I want to ask, you know, different types of people listen to this podcast series, you know, graduate students, other scholars, and some of us thinking about working on another project after a first or a second one. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about how you see the relationship between this project and that other book of yours. It is one of my favorite book titles. I actually use it. I stole it for a a lecture that I give on statistics and um, numbers, the power of large numbers. How do you see a connection, if if you do, between the work that you did in that project and, and this book? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think there is continuity between the kinds of questions that I asked in the first book and some of the questions that motivates my current work, but it's indirect. Hmm. I I arrived at Berkeley and I was uh, strongly under the influence of historians I 
I, I had worked with as an undergraduate and then historians that I worked with at Berkeley in the 1980s. And my dissertation topic, which became the power of large numbers, was, you know, what, what is it? It's a, it's, a, it's a story about the emergence of a new kind of knowledge about society in the 19th century um, and the relevance of that knowledge about society and population in particular for political life. Um, and uh, different conceptions of the obligations that men and women in French society had uh, to the nation. Mm. And I was particularly concerned then with the way that um, notions of French republicanism were attached to this emergent scientific knowledge about the population. And it, as it turned out, gender was, was an important axis for the analysis there. Men and women had different obligations to the nations as biological beings as members of this um, collective group, the population. And, you know, and so within it, there's a, there's a story about statistics and the the political uh, consequences of debates about quantitative knowledge, but at the biggest framework, it's a, it's a, it's a, was a story about the importance of difference for the Republic. And I think Mm. that theme is very much uh, a part of my uh, work on Algeria. And I have to say here, in the 1990s, when I was turning my attention to North Africa, learning about the history of French empire, quite late, you know, really, I didn't spend much time thinking about this as a graduate student on my prelim Mm. fields. You know, I was was very much a a kind of captive of the, the, the Europeanist framework. And, and I probably haven't fully shed that. And people will probably remark that about this book as well. But, you know, I, I was very strongly influenced by a group of, of, of slightly younger historians, people like Todd Shepard, who in the, in, in the 1990s, when they were in graduate school and then with their first books appearing in the early 2000s, were really forcing people of my cohort to confront the, mm-hmm. the, the question of difference and the republic difference and traditions of French nationalism in the broadest sense. It meant that we had to confront histories of race. It meant that we had to confront uh, debates about religion. It meant that we had to... So the earlier work on gender in the Republic, in some ways, those questions, uh, it, it wasn't hard for me to, to make the transition in an analytic sense. It was very hard to make the transition just in terms of the amount of things I suddenly had to learn about, right? That was a, that was a difficult second apprenticeship, a new set of archives, a new body of uh, work, um, a new kind of uh, approach to French history. That was hard. That's why this book took me so long. I feel like I'm asking you an absurd question. um, When I ask you if you can give us a thumbnail sketch of the Constantine murders, you know, as an episode, given that you've written an entire book about it, but just to kind of situate us, Right. I say Constantine murders, you know, what is your, what is your like two to three sentence version of the what happened, even though the whole book is about the impossibility of us fully getting to the what happened. In some way. Be careful when you ask somebody um, <laughs> who wrote, uh, you know, several hundred pages on the history of one weekend, right? For a short summary. Um, yeah. Yeah. So listen, my book is about a riot. Right. It's about a riot that takes place in the end of the summer in 1934 in a provincial town in eastern Algeria um, in which the uh, Muslim residents of the town attacked uh, Jewish residents in the town. Twenty five Jewish people died. Three Muslims also were killed. Um, And the book approaches this story in two ways. Part of it, and this is kind of the long-term approach, the sort of uh, looking deeper into the history of French Algeria, is an attempt to tell a broader history about the social history of political violence in a French colony, Mm. the ways in which um, the history of French colonialism recasts the relationship between the people who lived in North Africa before France arrived, that included both Jewish and Muslim populations, um, and the way that the establishment of a settler colony produces certain possibilities for violence. And that, that, that is a, a really the, the focus of the first half of the book. The second half mm-hmm. of the book um, required a different approach, and it's really a murder mystery. In the course of writing The Social History of Political Violence, I uncovered some documents that allowed me to tell a story that I, at the beginning I didn't imagine I would be able to do. And this was actually 
to name a person who I thought was responsible for helping to provoke this violence. And that required claiming that I could solve the mystery of what happened that day. One of the reasons it took me so long to write the book, I should just say, is that I was not sure that I had enough evidence to, to deliver on that second half. And when I committed myself to it, it required a different kind of narrative effort. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and let me just say, I think that I'm right about the solution to the mystery that I offer, but it is fragmentary. And, and I think the two halves of the book need each other in an important way. The murder mystery needs the social history of political violence in order to make sense. It's part of how we understand the motivation of the characters involved. And the social history of political violence needs the murder mystery because it reveals in a kind of stark way um, the lengths that people went to in French Algeria to defend the political order that um, the French had established in this colony. You begin the book by, you know, really diving into this question of the politics of narrative and implotment by kind of telling the story a few different ways, telling it as a a story focused on Muslims, focused on uh, the Jewish population, you know, whether to tell this as an Algerian story or a French story. So I guess I want to ask two questions. One about how you see the book as a problem of story, you know, as a historian and, and a kind of study, a case study in the problem of story, that, that, and then, yeah, this question of how the book is an interrogation of those identity naming categories, Muslim, Jewish, Algerian, French, how those are always at play and being interrogated throughout the book. Yeah. Thank you for asking me that, because in some ways that is the central problem of the story. Very quickly, when I began to do this research, I realized that the, the names that I use to describe groups of people um, would never be innocent. Hmm. It was impossible to tell the story without using the category of Muslim and Jewish because the initial incident that sparks the violence is a confrontation between a Jewish man who had been drinking with several Muslim men at a mosque who were preparing for their prayers, washing Mm -hmm. themselves. So the the religious categories were important, but at the same time, I was all too aware of the ways in which those categories, right? Say, oh, you're writing a book about a riot between Muslims and Jews. If you say that that's what you're doing, um, people immediately put it into a broader framework in which there is a kind of inevitable logic. Muslims and Jews living together in close proximity end up in a, in a, in a kind of a moment of murderous violence. Uh, I wanted to, to say, listen, we have to actually stop and look specifically at the very intricate relationships that existed within this community and not assume that the categories themselves carry with them a kind of necessity where the violence is the end point. In fact, the violence, I don't think, was inevitable. In fact, what was at issue was the ways in which the meaning of uh, you know, what it meant to be a Muslim colonial subject in French Algeria or what it meant to be a Jewish citizen in colonial Algeria um, and the ways in which at a moment where the colonial system was considering reform, Muslims and Jews could be imagined as common citizens of an imperial nation state. Um, the ways in which the meaning of those terms were up for grabs, that was what was happening here. Um, Mm. It was a debate about what Frenchness meant. It was a debate about um, what Algerianness meant. And it was a debate about uh, how uh, all of the different peoples in French Algeria could be conceived of as members of an imperial nation state, a republic. Let's come back to this question, Josh, of um, archives and sources. And, you know, because the book has this murder mystery aspect, like I can say things and ask about things like smoking guns and, you know, things that you're revealing and uncovering here. But that, I want to know about that, how um, archives and sources and research, how that process was for you in writing this book. And yeah, also, you know, the the challenges, the obstacles, how you're accessing the story here and the different ways of telling the story here from different perspectives, sources, materials. 
Yeah. So both parts of the story, the social history of political violence and the murder mystery, are dependent on the archives of the colonial state, um, which are rich. It doesn't mean they tell us everything, but there's an enormous amount of information in them. And the first half of the book tells the story of how relationships between Muslims and Jews in French Algeria, and in particular in this city, were recast by the establishment of the colonial regime in Algeria. And I pay particular attention to the emergence of, I know what we would call a kind of a civil status regime, right? In which these people who had lived in Algeria before the arrival of the French were absorbed into a polity with a certain status, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the colloquial term for them was indigenous, indigène, right? And then in 1870, Jews were singled out for citizenship and Muslims were not. This is a familiar story to anybody who's studied the history of French Algeria. Um, but I wanted to um, establish uh, precisely the, the ways in which concepts like indigeneity, right, developed over time, concepts like French citizenship for North Africans developed over time in the 19th century because it was precisely the the consequences of those designations, the designation of what your civil status was and what obligations it meant, how you paid taxes, whether or not you could vote uh, for representatives in parliament, whether or not you had any particular role to play in local politics, etc., the civil status regime was was the way in which those obligations and rights were distributed in the settler colony. And it was very important to tell that history. And that, you know, for historians of colonial regimes, that meant not taking the categories for granted, but seeking to situate them very specifically in the context where they emerge and tracing the ways in which citizenship changed and shifted across this period. And of course, the story that it tells is this this broader story of the ways in which Jews were granted citizenship and therefore arrived at a somewhat privileged position within within French Algeria, uh, Mm -hmm. precisely at a moment when Muslims found um, avenues for political participation increasingly cut off. They were subject to violence. They were subject to exclusion. They were subject to an unjust um, fiscal regime at the moment when Jews themselves were achieving citizenship and therefore running for local office and participating in the colonial regime. And this is a story about the ways in which the you know relationships between two groups that had been indigenous, right, or been there before mm-hmm. the French arrived, were transformed. That was a necessary background to this story. The second half of the book, though, this is where I get, I think it gets sticky for me, right? Mm. If you write the sort of social history of political violence that I'm talking about, you come to the archives of the colonial state with all your critical antenna out, right? They're very finely tuned. Anytime somebody invokes a category you like, you know, sujet coloniaux or indigène, you immediately want to sort of problematize it, show the ways in which this category is being invoked in a particular moment to do certain things, to, to refuse a kind of essentialist uh, vision of what those categories are. So you approach the, the, the archives of the colonial state with this kind of critical posture ready to pounce, right? It took me a while to realize that that critical posture wasn't going to help me solve the murder mystery. And here's the thing that's really hard for me to, you know, and I'll say it right here in this interview, it's kind of hard for me to admit how long it took me to realize that if I was going to make a claim about this person who I was accusing of participating in the murders, I actually had to believe what some of the sources told me. Mm. I had to believe in their power. That's, you know, for somebody like me trained in critical reading, that was kind of a hard thing for me to admit that I was going to do that. The only way that I could, in fact, allow myself to, to do that, because what, you know, what that is, there's a kind of complicity there, a complicity with the sources, which are, after all, produced by the police and by the military, who are part of the cover-up of this story, right? Uh-huh. And so if I am placing myself in a position of complicity with these sources, deciding that the information that is there can be treated as 
true in the sense that I'm going to propose um, a kind of solution to this mystery. I have to be very upfront about how and why I'm doing that. And in the second half of the book, that's really the sort of, there's, there's two things going on. There's one, the story that I'm trying to tell of, of this person who I'm accusing of murder. And then there's also my story of how I found these documents and how I lined them up and how I feel justified in suggesting that we can arrange them in this way to deliver a convincing portrait of what happened. Well, I can tell you that as a reader, there's a similar thing that happens (laughs) where, you know, I don't usually go in for the big story, you know, the, the, and the, I want the big reveal. Like I'm usually about interrogating the very notion of revelation, you know, and of, of solving the mystery and how that gets set up. And the book does satisfy both urges, that kind of analytic questioning urge, but also, I mean, it's got a page turner quality to it. And so I think that's kind of interesting that you were holding that tension between those things. It came through in the experience for me as a reader too, um, being, but really enjoying that kind of archival and other ways that you, you know, are looking for the truth (laughs) in a certain way. And the, the way the book also is asking questions about how truth looks different from different angles and depending on which categories we examine this story from, if that makes sense. Well, it's very gratifying to hear you say that because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to do both. And I wanted to show that doing both was possible um, in, in, in some limited way, right? I, I, in, in some sense, I understand that it's not easy asking your readers to um, you know, question your sources in the first half of the book in some ways and then accept them in others. But on the other hand, you know, I was talking about a terrible event where people died. And, and it was at, at some sort of simple level, I felt like I had a kind of, there was a sort of ethical obligation here that I had to not let go of. So I, I'll just put that out there, that that was why I decided, even at a moment when I was not sure that I could pull it off, that I didn't have all of the evidence I needed to accuse uh, this person of murder. Josh, I have this collection of things I want to ask you about that I guess could fall under the rubric of different ways of coming at this uh, episode spatially. So, uh, you know, it's a question about the specificity of Constantine in the Algerian context, the specificity of Algeria in the imperial context, um, and then also the different levels that the book involves uh, in its investigation, the local, you know, the municipal um, you mentioned earlier, you said something about, you know, being cap- a captive of the kind of Europeanist uh, bent in, in French historical studies before the, the imperial turn. And in some ways, I think of what you're doing in this book as a, you know, taking the lessons of critical imperial history, figuring out an, an important way to, to like repatriate a story that was made Algerian in order to make it specific and not French, repatriate it to France, that is to say. Um, so yeah, it's all, it's kind of a jumble there. I don't even know if there's a question in there, but <laughs> if you heard it, please answer it. <laughs> I understand exactly what you mean, actually. And I, I mean, I've just put it this way, that an important part of the imperial turn, uh, there, were, there were sort of two important impulses in this. For metropolitan historians like me, the initial impulse was the sudden revelation that we couldn't actually understand or explain the trajectories of French history that um, without constantly remaining aware of the ways in which the empire shaped the development of French national identity, of French laws, of uh, French regimes, of French the, the history of the Republic, right? At the same time, however, and this, this impulse actually came uh, from many of the people who had always worked in these spaces, people, you know, area studies special, specialists who worked in the history of North Africa or Algeria or Morocco or West Africa or other parts of the empire, Southeast Asia, Madagascar, who said, listen, we not only need to understand the ways in which France is shaped by being an empire, we also need to actually break down that axis of, of, of metropole colony and look for the ways in which the history 
of North Africa is shaped by things that are going on in the Middle East or is shaped by developments that are going on, you know, during the Cold War and other parts of the world, a kind of transnational focus that would break down, provincialize Europe, right? That was the Depeche mm-hmm. system, right? To, to, to explode an axis which insisted upon um, uh, the nation state somehow as the center of that. And I was very sympathetic and I learned an enormous amount from that. I remember reading James McDougall's book on history and nationalism in Algeria in the first part of the 20th century. And he, there's not much about France there at all. It's, it's about um, these individuals who travel to the Middle East and who are retelling the story of North African history. And all that work was hugely important to me. Nevertheless, when I decided that I was going to write this book about the riot in Constantine, I realized that there was a, an issue. One issue was that, or a couple issues, was that we didn't actually know that much about what really happened that day. And mm-hmm. people had nevertheless assumed that, I mean, a kind of relationship could be drawn between conflict between Muslims and Jews in Constantine in 1934 and conflict between Muslims and Jews in Jerusalem or in, 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 in Palestine during the same period. And there were undoubted links being made at the time about a kind of parallelism here. But before we could make those links, we actually had to know more about the context of what had happened. And the urgency of figuring that out, of figuring out a local political context for what had happened in Constantine, um, became clear to me when I realized that the initial impulse of the colonial authorities in the city was to, in fact, insist that this riot, that this violence needed no explanation at all because Muslims and Jews had always hated each other and that they were, you know, and that, that this violence between them didn't, it was just a kind of eruption of primitive atavistic hatreds that were a part of North African history that wasn't related to France at all. And I needed actually to restore that frame. I needed to say, no, this was, in fact, related to the ways in which the colonial regime was established in France, the ways in which the status of the peoples of this city was transformed by the presence of a colonial state. And the violence was, in fact, rooted specifically in a moment in which the colonial state was trying to reform itself. Right. Mm -hmm. Once that's done, then we can go back and we can look at these these other questions, and probably people with um, many more and different kinds of historical skills will do that. But we needed that context. So in spite of my admiration for the sort of transnational turn in imperial history, I did feel that with this specific event, the, the metropolitan colony access needed to be a part of my story. It needed to be restored to the story so that we could understand this riot in August 1934 in Constantine as a riot that took place in France and a riot that was, in fact, about Frenchness and also about the ways in which Muslims in France, I mean, Muslims in French Algeria were being invited to express hostility and violence towards Jews as a way of expressing their Frenchness. That mm-hmm. was crucial to me um, because that is, in fact, what I believe happened. One of the things that I love when I'm reading a book for this podcast or for anything really is when it takes some concept, some word that I think I know the meaning of and then makes it much more complicated and rich. And for me, and obviously in various ways for you throughout the book, in this project, that word is provocation. And so, you know, sometimes I will ask people more or less about their titles, but Provocation isn't just in the title of this book. I mean, it comes up in all of these different ways and you're really using it. It's like a tool throughout the book. So can you tell us a little bit about how that works and how you even came to that as your your keyword or one of the keywords in this project? Yeah. So the question of provocation is both in the sources and it's in my approach. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. That is... Provocation is something that people talked about at the time, that, in fact, much of political debate during this period was was about accusing other people of provoking uh, fissures, provoking conflict, of making demands that, that would only um, tear society apart. Right? And it, I realized that, that these accusations of provocation were like a red thread that I could follow. Um, to try and understand the ways in which the fractures of colonial society were being 
amplified and magnified for political benefit. Right? So, I, so I define provocation in the book as a kind of, I, know, I use this kind of terrible alliterative phrase, menacing mobilizations of difference for political gain, right? Um, wow. And people do this all the time, right? They invoke um, a fracture, which uh, many people will agree does exist in society, and they'll do it in such a way as to um, amplify the temperature of the debate, to in, incite conflicts around the axis of this fracture, um, and then seek to benefit from the, the, the political heat um, um, and, and at times violence that is generated from it. And, and, and this is the thing, right? Like all societies have fractures and have differences. Um, and democratic regimes, you know, where you periodically have to have elections in which candidates run for office in order to magnify their differences from their other um, candidates, there are always temptations to mobilize your supporters along these lines and of difference. And what I wanted to show is that there was nothing inevitable about this. But the, the decision to use provocative language in order to achieve your political goals was always just that. It was the result of a human calculation at a specific moment. Um, it wasn't because Muslims hate Jews all the time and Jews hate Muslims and they could never live together. It was, mm. in fact, a part of a political circumstance um, in which there were incentives for being provocative. Um, and also in which provocations didn't always work. And that was very important to emphasize, too, because I think at this moment, the attempts to provoke violence between Muslims and Jews in the interwar years um, in French Algeria mostly failed. And yet at this one moment in the summer of August 1934, they succeeded. And it was the anomaly of that success, actually, that needed to be explained and presented as an anomaly. Right. It needed to be shown. Mm -hmm. That was what I was uh, really um, intent upon to demonstrate. Another thing that I guess historians, well, not just of France um, and empire, but for our purposes, we, we'll go with that. Um, think they know, you know, we think we know what we're talking about when we say interwar period. How is this book an interwar book and an interwar Algeria book, an interwar France book, an interwar elsewhere book? How do you, yeah. how, how do we think about the, the First World War as having an impact here? What is the, you know, it's that kind of watershed type question, but also that space of uh, the 1920s and 30s, um, when people think 1934, and they're still trapped by the Europeanist frame, they're thinking Stavisky, like, so yeah, what, um, how, how do you make those connections? And how might we think about this as a, as a project that illuminates our understanding of interwar? So maybe I should say spoiler alert now, because in my answer, <laughs> I think I'm going to give away some of the mystery, but that's okay. I do that in the introduction anyway. Let me just say that my goal in this book was not to reject the metropolitan, metropolitan framing of the interwar period, but mm -hmm. it was in fact, and it, it was an attempt to say that there are two possible axes for looking at this history. Um, the metropolitan and the Europeanist framework for the interwar years is about the political polarization between left and right, the emergence of a communist party in the aftermath of the First World War, the emergence of extremist nationalisms and fascism, um, and the ways in which the center failed to hold, right? In Yeats's famous formulation, right? The ways in which democracy, liberal democracies under the pressures of uh, political extremisms on the left and the right, um, and the depression um, gave way uh, to, uh, in the sort of great catastrophe to uh, the political extremisms that led to Stalinism in Russia, Nazism in Germany, and ultimately the Second World War. Right? You can look, though, at the interwar period um, in a much broader frame, and many historians have done this, and they have insisted, no, what's happening? If you know, if you if you if you insist that the the chronology is not 1919 to 1945, but say it's you know, um, you know, 1870 to 1962, right? The the framework for the interwar years is this transitional moment in the history of of, of empire. Um, in the aftermath of the First World War, there's the emergence of anti-colonial nationalisms in various parts of the British and the French empires. There are 
the, uh, and the corresponding reflexive action by empires themselves to reform themselves, to introduce measures that uh, allow for a certain kind of expression of political belonging to colonial subjects. This was happening in Algeria in the interwar period. And it was that juxtaposition of the polarization of left and right, right, which is produces the crisis of French politics in the 1930s, but also in Algeria, the emergence of a, a kind of sense of urgency about a rapidly evolving situation um, in the colonial world, um, shifts in what it means to be a colonial subject, the emergence of a cohort um, of Muslim politicians who are running for office um, and claiming to speak for the Muslim colonial subjects who do not yet have parliamentary representation in France. Um, it was that context. They needed to be, those two axes, the, metro, the Europeanist and the imperial framework, needed to be discussed together. And so this is what makes the, the logic and the motivation of of Mohammed al-Mahdi, the man who I am accusing of murder, right? He is a mm -hmm. soldier in the French army. He's in uniform on the day of the riot. And he has, he's, he's a experienced, combat experience fighting in the French colonial army in Morocco in the 1920s, where he's exposed to a kind of extremist form of French nationalism that, vert, that, that becomes fascist in the early 1930s in the colonial context. And he seizes upon anti-Semitism as a way of demonstrating his Frenchness in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. It is his ticket to belonging to the tricolor, right? To the, to the, to, to the imperial nation state. Anti-Semitism for Mohammed al-Mahdi, I argue, the man who I'm accusing of, of, of helping to incite this violence and, and participating in the murders, adopts anti-Semitism as a way of assimilating to Frenchness. That's the argument I make in the book. You know, Josh, uh, over the years of doing this podcast, speaking with different people who've worked on France and Algeria, depending on whether or not the book was, is about the Algerian War of Independence or not, um, you know, we've talked about the, the way that the War of Independence sort of like retroactively shapes everything, right? That, um, or a lot, that stories and histories of what happens in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, in the interwar years, you know, the immediate post years that all roads end up leading to the Algerian War of Independence. And that that can be really obscuring in some sense, because people are always looking for nationalism, people are always looking for or most interested in nationalism. And so we lose sight of some of these types of characters, movements and complexities. I know that this is not a book about the Algerian War of Independence, but can I ask how that both the War of Independence and the kind of post-colonial legacies of the imperial relationship and all of its violences kind of lurks for you or lurked for you in this project and maybe how you might have had to push against that or undo it if, if that was an issue for you? Yeah. So it's a great question. You know, we all learn in graduate school to be careful about Whiggish conceptions of history, to avoid teleology, to to question master narratives that assume a kind of linearity um, over the centuries. But it's amazing how powerful those kind of conceptions of the sweep of history can be. And I think that's clearly true in the stories that in the, in, the, in the historiography of, of French Algeria for all sorts of good reasons, actually. I mean, mm -hmm. most of the people who had done wonderful and, and, and tremendously helpful work on the history of Algeria in the interwar period were quite rightly concerned with um, the sort of failures of the colonial regime and the emergence of anti-colonial nationalism. Why wouldn't they do that, right? That is what happens later, right? There is a successful nationalist movement that achieves independence in 1962. So it, it, you know, I don't, certainly don't want to say that that kind of history is misplaced or the, or, or the urge. But nevertheless, it is true that you know, stuff is just complicated. Um, and <laughs> extraordinary events can unfold where nobody has any idea about what's going to happen next. And I wanted to restore that kind of uncertainty. As I, as I did the research on this book, it became clear to me that all of the actors on that day 
um, in Algeria. The people on the street, um, the, the colonial officials, the police, the Muslim politicians who were trying to reform the system, all of them assumed that the colonial regime in Algeria would be in place for the foreseeable future. This was before a mass-based nationalist movement became implanted in Algeria. There were certainly already Algerian nationalists active in the diaspora in the 1920s, as we know uh, from uh, wonderful work um, by French and Algerian historians about the history of, yeah. of the Etoile Nord-Africaine and Benjamin Stora, right? There is, of course, Algerian nationalist movement in the diaspora, but you know those debates were not a significant part of the context for this riot. The riot took place in the context of a debate about how Muslims belonged to the French Republic. It was not yet a moment about about a break, about about a, a, a nationalist movement, which would be so successful in just a few short years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did I did feel like I had to kind of get out from under an understanding of what came later. You know, I'm kind of loosely following the parts of the book, but we're touching on them in different ways. But I'm kind of in part three here, a riot in France. Um, And that's what made me want to ask this time question in terms of the unfolding of the story that you're exploring and interrogating in the book, but also in terms of the writing and the process of making this book. Part of me just wants to be like, was that fun? Like doing this kind of at 11 a.m. and on the second and on the third, like you get to do this very close, careful, slow, like movement through like a slow motion in a whole part of a book through a period of what, three or four days. But then the book is also taking on the long stretch, right, Um, back to at least 1830. Um, And then with, we just talked about 1962, but, you know, has echoes right up to the present. So, yeah, I guess I want to ask about that process, but also how time works in the book and in the story that you're that you're interrogating here. Yeah. So time scales matter, right? The first half of the book is a kind of long view and the chapters are relatively short and I move relatively quickly through the decades. And I have to admit here, there's not a lot of primary research I'm, I'm in that. I'm basically setting the context on the basis of, of the abundant and, and, and wonderful secondary literature we have on, on the history of the establishment of French Algeria. That middle section of the book where I actually try and narrate the events of the day is based in, almost entirely on the archival reports, of which there were so many that it was quite overwhelming. And, you know, was it fun? At a certain point, I, I should say... Or maddening. <laughs> after I'd been working... It, it Actually, it took me several years even to sort of get up to enough courage to tackle all this. Can I say that I spent a year in X, over, well over a decade ago, doing the initial research for this book. And it was my first experience, or quite early in my experience with digital photography. This project would not have been possible without the um, mm-hmm. archive of digital photos that I was able to create of the documents. It just took me years to work through it. And I don't say that to boast, because I certainly didn't use all of them, but to simply say that um, I wanted to be able to try and use the sources that were available at the time. I didn't want to be dependent on what people reported um, in the secondary literature. I wanted to just simply use the sources that were available at the time. It means um, that there was a there's a kind of pointillist character to the research because the reports are very specific. Some of them are only a paragraph long, and they're about what happened at 10:30, and you know, and there's all of these mm-hmm. other partial views that you have to bring in. And and you know what I said earlier about you know wanting to solve the murder mystery, that in fact meant mastering what happened as much as I could minute by minute, because my documents that place Mohammed al-Mahdi at the scene come with a timestamp. And I had to be able to reconstruct the ways in which the murders unfolded in the spaces and streets of the city uh, on the morning of, of, of August 5th, 1934. And so time was crucial to that. And it was hard because at the, mo- at, the, at the most crucial moment, the police reports themselves, I think, intentionally become vague about time because they understood, as these reports were written in the days and, and, and weeks after the event, that knowing too much about the time in which things took place 
could be incriminating for them. Mm -hmm. You know, describing the intricacy of that reconstruction uh, too much for this moment now, but I invite the readers to pay attention to that because it was largely on the basis of my incomplete sense of how things unfolded minute by minute um, that I was able to make the argument that I make about the, the activities of what I believe were a small group of people who committed most of the murders as a provocation to exacerbate the, the horror of this moment of unrest. What you just mentioned about the dangers from the French perspective and of being too clear about time in some instances because of who it would implicate brings us kind of to that fourth uh, part of the the book and to the fact that this is a murder mystery, but it's also like there's a conspiracy story in this and the suppression of the truth that is involved in this, that making the riot Algerian and this kind of uh, echoes the thing we were talking about earlier in terms of, or what I mentioned when I said that there's a kind of repatriation story happening here, that, you know, the deliberate act of suppressing the involvement of El Mahdi and the truth of, of what happened here, how that was about cutting off or um, segregating this story as an Algerian story, a story of a very particular kind of political violence that the French imperial nation state is not implicated in. This was very important for me to be able to establish the ways in which the story that I believe that I have found in the documents um, was erased from the from the record at the time, sort of mm -hmm. in, immediately. And uh, I, I have to confess that I don't believe I really have a smoking gun, but I do have a single document, which was in some ways the kind of key to everything that followed. Um, which proved to me that the police themselves, when they spoke to one another, believed that there had been a small number of people who were responsible for provoking the violence. And what's more, they knew the name of the individual. His name was Mohammed al-Mahdi. And they understood that he was a soldier in the French army at the time and that he was linked to the family of an important lawyer in the city who was an, an ally of the mayor on the uh, departmental council, an elected office um, in Constantine. It's not quite a smoking gun that proves the involvement of murder. What it demonstrated to me was the police themselves believed this. And when they spoke amongst themselves, this is how they spoke of it. And so I had to look for ways in which that story could possibly be true. And I found a number of corroborating bits of evidence that, that, that showed that it could be true, you know, documenting his presence at the home when there was murders, um, and the involvement of this lawyer later in the trials of the people who were eventually accused of the murders that took place that day. So what about the long, the longer after of this story in terms of, you know, direct references to the riots? on the other side of 1934? And then if I can drag that question out to bring us all the way into the 21st century, like what's the concrete story of how the Constantine murders echo into the future after 1934? And then how do you see the kind of legacies of like what it means to think about 1934 in these ways in the present? Yeah, hard question. Let me just divide it up. I mean, I think I can say uh -huh. something about the afterlife or the memory of this event uh, in French history and reasons that we might want to think about this event in connection with things that have been happening um, in France in recent years or even this week in our own country. Let me just say, first of all, my book is, does not actually broach the question of the afterlife or the memory of the Constantine murders um, in subsequent decades. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, that was a very conscious decision. First of all, the book was already too long. I really wanted to simply put for the record what I believed had happened that day. Other historians have, have written about this event and, and have made connections uh, to other events. And, and the, one, the one I mentioned earlier, uh, the resonance of, you know, of conflict between Muslims and Jews in Palestine, for example, in the interwar period in North Africa, mm -hmm. um, for example. And, they want, and people immediately wanted to connect what happened in Algeria 
to what was happening in Palestine. I think those linkages are there. You know, it's clear that Arabic language newspapers in, in Algeria were mentioning what was going on in Palestine. My own reading of this is that when it comes to the actual unfolding of the violence on that day, what was happening in Palestine was not particularly important, or at most only of secondary importance to a few of the actors. Much more important was this context about French right-wing extremism and an attempt to use anti-Semitism as a way of eliciting support from a certain portion of the Muslim population to this you know, kind of emerging colonial fascism um, in Algeria. On the other hand, because of the drama of everything that happened later, right, including um, you know, the Second World War, the end of the mandate system, the Holocaust, the establishment of the state of Israel, it was impossible. And then, of course, the subsequent departure of Algeria's Jewish citizens in 1962. Mm-hmm. Right? There are no Jews who live in um, Algeria to, um, anymore to speak of. Uh, and because of the drama of those events, it was it was very hard for people, including family members, you know, Jewish families from Constantine who end up living in France in the second half of the 20th century, who who remember what happened in 1934 through the filter of all of these other dramatic events. It's quite natural for them to place it in that frame. Mm-hmm. I think there's room for a history of those linkages and, and, a, and, a, and a narration of the importance of this event to those contexts. I don't think it helps us understand what happened that day. I think it helps us understand how the event was processed in subsequent years. That's inevitable. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't part of my goal in writing the book to shed too much light on that process. Some people had done that already, and I felt that that was premature since we hadn't actually established the context of the local context. I kind of put blinders on in some ways, resolutely Mm. struggling to explain things in a local context. Very very aware that I was perhaps missing important connections, Um, but it was because I felt that this local story was unknown and needed to be brought forward. Now that it's out there, people can engage with it. And I think this um, sort of broader context will be left to other historians. I don't know if I have the stamina to to do that work myself. (laughs) And can I, should I broach the second half of your question about? It's a heavy thing to broach. But yeah, I mean, this book came out in 2019. And then this whatever year or two that we've had and this moment that we're in now, as you say, in France, but also... Um, in the U.S. and the world, um, I don't know. I don't know how you begin to broach that. But if you if you have an idea and want to take a stab at it, then let me do it this way. You know, I was developing my arguments about provocation and how to write histories of provocation and ways in which the subject of provocation can be an interesting thread for historians to follow in order to understand what's going on uh, at certain crucial moments of political crisis. I was developing those arguments over the last few years, right? Um, so the the terrorist attacks in, in France in 2015, the, the Charlie Hebdo killings, um, the Bataclan, in some ways, I, I certainly couldn't begin to write the history of those events in the way that I've tried to write the history of this event. And I wouldn't claim an ability to pontificate about the significance of those events in the same way. But I do think that we can think about the way that provocations are designed to work in order to try and understand what's going on. And here I want to refer actually to an argument made by my colleague at the University of Michigan, Juan Cole, um, no, no relation. We, we have the same oh right. <laughs> we have the same last name, but we're not we're not related. But he, he pointed out that the and this is also true of terrorist attacks like on 9/11 that the goal of these attacks is to sharpen the contradictions in a society. Right. In some way, uh, when a, when a murderous attack is undertaken by extremists. Um, in the name of a radicalized vision of Islam in France in 2015. The goal there is to prove that to French people and to Muslims living in France, as well as non-Muslims living in France, that this vision of Islam is incompatible with the form of society that lives here. And it is inviting 
a violent response in return in order to exacerbate those contradictions. Uh, it's part of a recruiting method to prove to Muslims who live assimilated into French society that they can't and shouldn't feel comfortable or safe in France, um, as well as you know to, to, to punish uh, those people that they're aiming this violence at. And that idea of sharpening the contradictions, I think, is an important thing to reflect upon when we think about how we react, right? It's very difficult to counter the power of a provocative act. If a, if a, um, if a person is murdered because they are Jewish, or if a person is attacked because they are a Muslim, in a kind of horrible way, the, the perpetrator of this violence is, is, is actually enacting the vulnerability that they are asserting, right? They're performing, they're making it real. At that moment, the Jewish person is vulnerable. The Jewish person is not safe. The Muslim person is not safe at that moment, right? That's the power that provocation has. It creates and perpetuates um, a vulnerability defined in the very terms that the provocateur wants to say are the most important ones. And in fact, mm -hmm. to defend the victims of such attacks, we have no choice but to, to, to claim solidarity with them in the name of those categories whose meaning has been reinforced and transformed by the violence. In writing this book, I wanted to say that violence between Muslims and Jews in France in 1934 was not inevitable because Muslims and Jews had lived next to one another. But the act of murder in 1934 did succeed in hardening and crystallizing notions of what it meant to be a Muslim or a Jew in French Algeria and made it that much harder to imagine a different kind of future. And I think that is the challenge of the present moment, right? Mm -hmm. To not allow political provocation to insist that these, um, these distinctions, racial distinctions, should be the only ones that are operative um, in conceiving of a political future, right? You have to, if somebody's attacked because they're black or because of their Muslim or Jewish, you have to stand in solidarity with them as black people, as Muslims, as Jews. But at the same time, you have to refuse the provocateur's insistence that those categories are the only ones that matter. I would love to talk to you for hours and hours more, and I have so many other questions that I want to ask you, but I'll try to do that offline and just ask you one more during this interview, which is, what are you working on now? Oh, that's a really tough question because... <laughs> in the midst of all this chaos. In the midst of all this chaos, I've actually been, in some ways, very much changing the way I had been thinking about my next work. Hmm. It's partly in response to uh, what's been happening um, in our own country in the past year, in the aftermath of the um, George Floyd protests and the response of the Trump administration and you know, the current crisis that we're facing right now, figuring out how to move on. And I'm almost reluctant to say in too much detail how I envision my next project, but I will say that what I've been thinking a lot about in the past several months is trying to figure out something about the history of anti-racism in France across the 20th century mm. and the turning points in the history of anti-racism and trying to figure out an account of its failures, of its many failures. And this is a subject I think with many people have spoken about. We have some very interesting work on the histories of anti-racist organizations in France going back to the Dreyfus Fair and the League of the Rights of Man, or MRAP, right, the um, uh, organizations that emerged in the aftermath of the Second World War, SOS Racisme oh. in the 1980s. This is partly in response to something I perceive of as an inadequacy in my own teaching. And I'm beginning to really think hard about the period of the late 1970s and the early 1980s as a turning point in the history of anti-racism in France. Um, and trying to come up with a, a more satisfying account of what was happening at that moment, the Marche des Beurs, right, the, the Marche pour l'égalité um, in the fall of mm -hmm. 1983, and how that opportunity somehow seems to have been squandered. We had the emergence of SOS Racisme in the aftermath of that. But somehow, um, whatever was offered by that moment, a kind of grassroots 
movement coming from young people living in the Cité and marginalized areas on the periphery of French cities to talk about police violence, to talk about the failures of France's model for assimilation. How that opportunity was lost and what, what were the larger contexts for this failure of anti-racism in France? So, you know, I know other people have been working on this. I'm eagerly awaiting the new book by Tyler Stovall. There's all sorts of things. We'll see how that takes me. Well, Josh, I just want to thank you so much for joining me for this interview and for writing this wonderful book. Thank you so much, Roxanne, for inviting me. Thank you.